The History of the World podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. This is a special episode of the History of the World podcast on the Elizabethan Sea Dogs. Today's episode takes us to the country of England during the 16th century and heavily involves the realm of the United Crowns of Castile and Aragon, which we recognise as the new imperial regime called Spain. Spain was effectively formed by the unification of these crowns and significant defeat and conquest of the Emirate of Granada in 1492, the last Muslim stronghold in the Iberian Peninsula and proved to be the foundation of the Catholic powerhouse of the Age of Exploration that was Spain. Naval merchants had become extremely important during the course of the 15th century as the merchant classes were enjoying more freedom and opportunity than during the medieval centuries when feudal law was more dominant in Western Europe. Sailors from both Portugal and Spain were attempting to exploit these new opportunities. Shipbuilding had advanced so that huge three and four masted vessels capable of traversing the treacherous high seas and armed with guns to enable them to devastate rival vessels and new lands were now being built. The Portuguese were already monopolising the sea trade of the western African coast, but now the Spanish were investing in voyages of discovery, with one of the most notable being those of Christopher Columbus from 1492. The Portuguese already having discovered the relatively nearby Cape Verde Islands around 50 years previous would sign a proposed treaty in 1494 with Spain to agree on a boundary where the geographical locations of the lands across the Atlantic Ocean should determine whether it be the entitlement of Spain or of Portugal. Everything within 370 leagues of a meridian line west of the Cape Verde Islands would be Portugal's right and everything beyond would be Spain's. A league is an archaic unit of measurement, maybe in this context around four to five kilometres. The treaty was called the Treaty of Tordesillas. The meridian proposed by the treaty essentially tells us the origin of why Brazil is the only Portuguese-speaking nation of South America, because... Brazil roughly represented the lands of the continent to the east of this meridian line. The ruler of Spain was Queen Isabella of Castile, who was married to King Ferdinand II of Aragon, hence the unification of the two crowns. Their daughter, Joanna, was married to the Lord of the Netherlands, 
a Habsburg dynasty monarch called Philip. When Joanna acceded to the Castilian throne, Philip would effectively become the first Habsburg ruler of Spain, a significant event in the early modern age of European history. Philip died young, and Joanna was suffering from mental illness, meaning she could not be permitted to rule on her own. Philip and Joanna had a son called Charles, who would be invited to become the King of Spain, co-ruling with his mother, and on the death of his paternal grandfather, he would become the living patriarch of the Habsburgs, and he would use his power to secure his coronation as the Holy Roman Emperor. Habsburg power now controlled much of Central Europe, the Netherlands and Spain. Both Spain and the Habsburgs were loyally Roman Catholic, operating very closely with the papacy, but a new challenge to Roman Catholicism was emerging in Europe. A German monk called Martin Luther published a list called the 95 Theses that called out the excesses of the Catholic Church. Movements against Roman Catholic misrepresentation of Christianity had been taking place for a few centuries, but the scale of them had been increasing at an alarming rate. Luther's publication instigated a backlash against the practices of the Roman Catholic Church like never before, some of which were in Habsburg territories, particularly Germany and the Netherlands. This backlash is called the Protestant Reformation, or simply often called the Reformation, and it validated those who were fundamentally Christian not having to take the word of the Pope as gospel. The Lutheran publication effectively called the Roman Catholic Church corrupt. One of the most important events of the Reformation happened in the country of England. England had been through a turbulent time in the lead-up to the 16th century. Continuous wars with France during the 14th and 15th centuries had not only dented the economy, but also seen the loss of vast amounts of continental territory. In the aftermath, the actual monarchy of the nation had become highly disputed, with two rival houses called Lancaster and York fighting for the English crown. It would be a descendant of the Lancastrian house called Henry Tudor who would kill the last Yorkist king, Richard III, in battle and claim the English throne as Henry VII. This would usher in a new Tudor dynasty of English rulers and represent an opportunity to rebuild the economy of the country. England's great advantage was its geographical detachment from mainland Europe, making it difficult to invade, so the opportunity to rebuild was there. The big change came in England during the reign of Henry VII's son, who would reign as Henry VIII. Henry had been married to Catherine of Aragon, the younger sister of Queen Joanna of Castile. 
Catherine had not been able to produce a male heir for the English throne, so Henry would look for a way to divorce her, but the Pope would not support this due to the strong connection between Aragon and the Habsburgs, meaning that England's welfare as a kingdom was just not a priority. So Henry organised for England to become a Protestant nation, so that he could legally divorce Catherine. This would establish the Anglican Church, which Henry himself would become the head of, and this would cause bitter tension between England and the papacy, and also England and Spain. Spain would feel that their royal lady Catherine had been disrespected, but not everyone in England was comfortable with the change either. The Spanish had commissioned many voyages of exploration and discovery during this period, taking full advantage of their ability to use wealth to gain even more wealth. Sailors used to frequently sell their skills to the highest bidder, so when the Portuguese sailor Ferdinand Magellan attempted to circumnavigate the globe in the early 1520s, it was the Spanish who funded this venture, not the Portuguese. The Spanish conquistadors would successfully take control of lands in the established settlement areas that exist in the modern countries of Mexico and Peru during the 1520s and the 1530s. By the 1550s, Lutheranism had gained so much popularity that the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V, who was the same Charles who had ruled Spain alongside his mother Joanna, determined that the individual states of the Holy Roman Empire be allowed to decide whether they were Catholic or Lutheran in a treaty called the Peace of Augsburg. Charles abdicated the Holy Roman Empire to his younger brother who ruled as Ferdinand I and the Kingdom of Spain to his son who would rule as Philip II. Philip was married to Queen Mary of England even though her father Henry VIII had broken away from Catholicism. Philip was the Catholic King Consort of England, bringing Spain and England closer together after the controversy of King Henry's divorce of his Aragonese wife. It would not be long before Mary died at a young age, and her sister would accede to the throne, ruling as Queen Elizabeth I. The widower, King Philip II of Spain, hastily tried to propose marriage to Mary's younger sister, and she decided not to accept the offer, instead preferring to declare her nation as a Protestant nation again, effectively instigating the Church of England. Piracy and Privateering For as long as there had been merchant ships, there had been pirates. Pirates were willing to take control of merchant ships in order to take advantage of the booty on board for their own gain. Now that seafaring merchants were becoming more wealthy and powerful, so the pirates of the seas would be as active as ever. Piracy was tantamount to straightforward theft though, and most nations upheld the act of theft as illegal. If the goods on board the merchant ship were of benefit to the nation, 
then the nation would come down hard on any form of piracy. Now, in the middle of the 16th century, the Spanish were monopolising the transport of precious gold and silver from the New World and becoming wealthier, overshadowing its neighbours in France and Portugal and also the Kingdom of England. Elizabeth felt that something needed to be done to stop Spanish dominance. So she would enlist privateers to help England combat the wealth of the Spanish. The reality of privateering is that it is the same as piracy. English pirates attacking and robbing Spanish merchant ships. The reason it wasn't piracy is because Queen Elizabeth called it privateering and privateering was in the nation's interests and was therefore legal. The introduction of privateering brought some of England's most adventurous sailors to the fore. Some call them the Sea Dogs, and we're going to meet some of them now. Sir Francis Drake Francis Drake was born in the English county of Devon, sometime around the turn of the 1540s. His father was originally a farmer and was also a Protestant. A Catholic rebellion in the southwest of England caused the Drake family to flee to Kent while Francis was still a child. There, Drake's father, Edmund, would become a Protestant minister to members of the King's Navy, with the King of England at the time being Elizabeth's younger brother, King Edward VI. By the 16th century, the ability of maritime travel had advanced to a point where sea vessels could overcome the difficulties of the ocean's tidal currents pulling a ship off course, and now, for the first time, ocean travel was a possibility. So Drake had entered into a world and an industry that would be full of exciting prospects for a talented young sailor. Seafaring advancements brought areas of the world closer together. The Portuguese and the Spanish were already exploiting the opportunity for precious metals such as gold and silver from the West African coast. From the 15th century, the Iberian nations had been discovering new lands such as the Canary Islands, the Azores, Cape Verde and then beyond to the Americas. Captured peoples would be sold off as slaves as they had done for many centuries beforehand between different nations. The tribes of West Africa were no different. Infighting between the tribes would often result in captured prisoners of war being sold off into slavery. When European countries such as Spain discovered the Americas, they needed manpower for mining and agriculture and there was an abundance of captured manpower in West Africa that was able to be purchased using products such as fabric and alcohol. Countries such as England and France were now falling behind Spain in terms of taking the opportunity to cash in on the new riches of the Americas, as the Spanish were seizing the opportunity to trade wares for slaves and then transport the slaves over to the Americas to utilise their labour. Francis Drake's origins in the English county of Devon meant that he had familiar links with the Hawkins family, who were seafarers and merchants 
and who had served under the Tudor monarchs in various naval capacities. The Hawkins family had successfully travelled to the Americas themselves and as a young man John Hawkins had discovered the opportunity to purchase West African slaves and transport them across the Atlantic to sell them to the established Spanish colonies in the Americas, although the Spanish royal court was not very pleased about this English involvement and not very pleased that Queen Elizabeth herself was not too active in trying to prevent it actually encouraging the act of privateering or granting licence to English naval freedom, including acts of piracy against Spanish ships. Francis Drake himself would come into the service of John Hawkins, and so Drake would have first-hand experience of overseeing slave exchanges for himself. In 1568, Hawkins would lead six merchant ships across the Atlantic. Even with the abilities of modern ships, travelling across the Atlantic was still quite risky and Hawkins was forced to dock at San Juan de Ulua, the modern port city of Veracruz in Mexico. During this time, it was considered a part of the Vice-Royalty of New Spain, a nation declared by Spain and validated by the Treaty of Tordesillas that we mentioned earlier. It was the treaty that declared everything west of the meridian that is often referred to as the Tordesillas Line as the property of Spain. With this treaty having papal approval, it may come as no surprise that the nation of England, now no longer affiliated with the Roman Catholic Church, did not recognise that these lands were the exclusive property of the Spaniards. While the local Spanish governors were reasonably happy to trade with the English flotilla, the authorities in Spain under King Philip II were not. A man called Martín Enríquez de Almanza was appointed as the new Viceroy of New Spain with specific instruction to rid New Spain of English pirates and this would include Hawkins' flotilla. Hawkins and Drake barely escaped the attack called the Battle of San Juan de Ulua. Many men were lost within the English flotilla and Hawkins and Drake would be haunted by the pressure to explain how these men were lost and whether they were abandoned to their fate. The English felt that the attack was not justified and would carry a weight of bad feeling towards the Spanish afterwards. It was in the aftermath of this incident that Queen Elizabeth I of England would oversee the validation of privateers conducting piracy against the Spanish. In order to transport goods that had been gathered by the Spanish in South America, it would be shipped from the port city of Lima, now the modern capital of Peru, to the port of Panama, now the modern capital of Panama called Panama City. Still a full 300 years before the construction of the Panama Canal, the goods would be carried by mule, 40 miles across the narrow isthmus of land from the Pacific coast at Panama to the Atlantic coast at Nombre de Dios. Francis Drake 
planned to plunder the riches stored at Nombre de Dios. Drake arrived and captured the port, but the Spanish were quick to chase him away. So Drake resorted to attacking Spanish galleons and befriending escaped African slaves into supporting his aggressions against the Spaniards. These escaped slaves in the area of Panama are called the Cimarron people. Drake and his allies successfully attacked the Spanish mule train, taking large amounts of gold and silver. Drake would bury this treasure until such a time as he was able to travel home a wealthy man. Drake was an English hero, but it was more important that Queen Elizabeth try to rebuild a cordial relationship with King Philip to prevent an escalation of tensions between England and Spain. Higher levels of distrust existed between England and Spain, despite an official softening of tensions between the two nations. The peace between the two countries favoured the official merchants of London. But for the likes of Drake, the success of piracy under the guise of privateering was highly tempting. Others had a lot of faith in Drake's ability to venture into the jaws of danger and not only escape, but escape with riches. So there was a lot of willingness by some to invest in Drake's next adventure, which was to attack the Pacific ports of New Spain, something that would require him to traverse the Strait of Magellan to the far south of the continent of South America. Drake's flotilla of six ships that crossed the Atlantic Ocean very quickly dwindled down to one, the Pelican, which Drake renamed the Golden Hind. The Golden Hind was in reference to the coat of arms of one of the Queen's favourites, Sir Christopher Hatton, a trusted member of the Queen's Privy Council. Drake's motivation for doing this may have been because Drake had chosen to try and execute Hatton's personal secretary, Thomas Doughty, earlier in the journey. It does seem that Drake was much more suited to commanding his own ship in his own way, without the complications of politics and interference. His character suggests that he is a man who works to his own flamboyant agenda, as opposed to one that may or may not have been imposed on him. He did always know that if he kept on the right side of his queen, that she would feel more compelled to support his daring adventures, the likes of which clearly made him feel alive. The pursuit of glory and riches was all the motivation that Drake needed to do what he did. Upon travelling up the Pacific coast of the Americas, possibly as far north as the modern state of Oregon in the USA, he decided to turn south, where he was blown across the Pacific Ocean all the way to Indonesia, where he would be able to follow the more familiar sea routes around Africa and back to Plymouth, the main port of the English county of Devon. His collection of wealth was shared with his queen and the queen would knight him 
as a reward for his achievements, even though she would initially have to demonstrate disapproval on a diplomatic level for his actions against Spanish interests. He became the first Englishman to circumnavigate the globe, and he became a member of Parliament, although his heart was still on the open seas. Sir Walter Raleigh Another product of the rich naval heritage of the families of Devon was Walter Raleigh. Raleigh's family would also have to avoid being targets of Queen Mary's Roman Catholic regime before Mary's passing brought her younger half-sister, Elizabeth, to the throne, which brought Protestantism back to the fore in England. On the continent, the Peace of Augsburg was instigated by Queen Mary's father-in-law, the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V, which brought tolerance of the Lutheran Protestants to the lands of Germany. However, the Calvinist Protestants were excluded from this treaty. The Calvinists did agree that the Roman Catholic Church was not representing Christianity correctly, but did not completely agree with the Lutheran interpretation. In France, both Lutherans and Calvinists existed, but the country itself was still Roman Catholic. Calvinism grew in popularity in the south and the west of France, where the followers would become known as the Huguenots. Tension between the Huguenots and the French Catholics broke out into war during the 1560s, during a period known as the French Wars of Religion. Walter Raleigh would travel to France as a young man to support the Huguenots, so his anti-Catholic sentiment must have been very strong. Since the reign of Elizabeth's father, Henry VIII, there had been a considerable effort by the English to expand their influence in Ireland. English presence was restricted to a relatively small area called the Pale in the lead up to the 16th century, but now there was a considerable effort to dominate the island. With Ireland still having Catholic traditions, the danger of Ireland and its clans becoming an attractive ally for the Spanish was quite realistic, so Elizabeth deemed it important to establish English plantations in Ireland that would also encourage the spread of Protestantism on the island. When the English attempted to expand into the province of Munster, there were uprisings known to history as the Desmond Rebellions and Walter Raleigh was sent to Ireland to help the English cause. This would result in Raleigh being granted lands in Ireland. In 1584, Raleigh obtained a royal charter from Queen Elizabeth allowing him to explore and colonise on behalf of the English crown. So Raleigh sent two ships to North America in order to establish the first English colonies from which to obtain goods, spread Protestantism and establish an American base from which to potentially attack Spanish colonies. A potentially fruitful opportunity was discovered within the outer banks of the coastline of the modern state of North Carolina on an island located in the inland waters which we call the Sounds. 
relations with the natives were erratic to say the least, with escalated tensions interspersed with attempts to maintain trade and diplomacy. The colony was called Roanoke and the island is now called Roanoke Island. The strained attempts to establish a colony by Raleigh, who incidentally never visited the colony, continued with over a hundred settlers left to find their fortune. However, attempts to revisit the colony were put on hold as the situation between England and Spain escalated and made seafaring highly volatile. The Anglo-Spanish War King Philip II of Spain was always keen to maintain an alliance with England after the death of his wife, Queen Mary of England, as France was the traditional enemy of the Spanish, as it was also to the English. The Spanish desire to be the senior partner in such an alliance and to promote Roman Catholicism was uncomfortable for Queen Elizabeth I, who was keen to improve England's international standing. Religion underpinned the international alliances of the late 16th century. With Elizabeth and her sea dogs such as Drake, Hawkins and Raleigh all sharing a Protestant leaning and with the English providing support for the Huguenots in France and the United Provinces of the Netherlands who had broken away from the staunchly Catholic Spanish Netherlands in favour of autonomy and religious tolerance for Protestants. The solution to the problem for Philip was to declare that Elizabeth's father's divorce from Catherine of Aragon was illegitimate and that this meant that Elizabeth's ascendancy to the English throne was also illegitimate, meaning that Philip could now get papal approval to depose Elizabeth from the English throne in favour of a legitimate Catholic. As soon as Elizabeth became aware of Catholic sentiments in 1587, she executed the imprisoned lady who represented the legitimate Catholic monarch, Mary, Queen of Scots, before planning to make the first direct move of aggression against the Spanish. So Elizabeth turned to her prized sea dog, Sir Francis Drake, and gave him a fleet with which to investigate Spanish preparations for an invasion, but in reality it was a covert mission to take advantage of any opportunity to undermine the invasion. By this time the Spanish had created a political union with the Crown of Portugal, which effectively brought Portugal under Spanish control. Drake learned that the Spanish were indeed planning to invade England and were gathering a large armada of warships, with one of the first actions to move a fleet from the southern Spanish port of Cardiz to the Portuguese port of Lisbon. Before the fleet could leave, Drake led his own fleet into the Bay of Cadiz and devastated the Spanish fleet, and captured others as well as attempting to destroy or capture any enemy vessel it encountered on its return journey, whether it be warship or fishing boat. In all, Drake's fleet destroyed over a hundred Spanish vessels and returned to England laden with captured booty. Drake 
boasted of metaphorically singeing the King of Spain's beard on his heroic return, but warned that his actions would only delay Spain's inevitable invasion. It would be the Lord High Admiral Charles Howard who was tasked with the duty of commanding the English naval forces when the Spanish Armada approached the island of Great Britain with intent to sail along the English Channel to a base port in the Netherlands. Howard would be granted command of an English galleon called the Ark Royal, originally commissioned for water rally, but since required for the defence of English territory. The English would gather their finest seamen for this engagement. They included John Hawkins, a great intellectual who had contributed much to the modernisation of English shipbuilding and was one of Francis Drake's mentors 20 years previous when transporting African slaves across the Atlantic Ocean. Also there was Martin Frobisher, a privateer who had also sailed to America via Africa and somebody who had been granted command of one of the four English squadrons. Certainly, there was also Francis Drake, who was effectively Lord Howard's second in command. While in Plymouth, Lord High Admiral Charles Howard made the following observation. My good Lord, there is here the gallantest company of captains, soldiers and mariners that I think ever was seen in England. The Spanish Armada would have been happy to dock for respite and supplies on their travels. Ideally, they would have liked to have captured an English port city. Whether or not Francis Drake insisted upon finishing his game of bowls when the Spanish Armada was first sighted from English shores remains unknown. We do know that Howard and Drake anticipated the Spanish Armada's desire to dock and they did everything to prevent it. It was thanks to Hawking's design innovations that the English ships were able to move swiftly and maintain the ability to fire cannons at the Spanish fleet with a good degree of accuracy. Despite the Spanish attempts to engage individual English ships at close quarters, the English were still able to badger the Spanish journey from a safe distance, with Drake, Frobisher and Hawkins all directly involved. The Spanish chose to dock at Calais on the north coast of France. Calais was traditionally an English possession, but it was lost to the French during Queen Mary's watch. The Spanish Armada retained its formation while docked and biding its time waiting for the supporting fleet to arrive from the Netherlands. The English were not prepared to allow the Spaniards this luxury so they sent warships packed with combustible and flammable material towards the Spanish fleet at Calais. The last remaining crew would set the English ships ablaze before abandoning ship in what sounds like a daring and life-threatening act. The Spanish had to react quickly to avoid disaster 
and their quick thinking allowed for their fleet to remain unscathed. But now the protective formation was lost as the Spanish fleet scattered. The English took this opportunity to attack the disorganised Spanish fleet. This was a disaster for the Spanish, who believed that there was no way to return along the English Channel to escape the situation, so they chose to head north and circumnavigate Great Britain instead. The stormy waters and piracy of these waters cost the Spaniards dearly, and little did they realise that the English fleet had actually run out of ammunition. So the desperate Spanish journey was totally unnecessary. Only half of the Spanish Armada eventually returned to Spain. The English saw this as God's favour towards the Protestants, as realistically the whole event of the Spanish Armada could have turned out completely differently, as fortune favoured the English. The braveness of Sir Francis Drake did not always end with a prosperous result for Drake and the English. Drake was keen to try to follow up on the good English fortune by organising an invasion of Spanish ports to further debilitate the Spanish fleet before it could return to try to invade again. However, bad weather and a general lack of resources meant that the invasion turned out to be fruitless and expensive, so for once, Drake would come back to England with nothing to show for his confident belligerence. After the Armada Martin Frobisher was able to purchase estates in Yorkshire and Nottinghamshire using his acquired wealth and he still continued to privateer until he received a gunshot wound while serving the English during the siege of Fort Crozon against the Spanish in France. The wound became infected and this claimed Frobisher's life in 1594 when he was likely to be in his late 50s. Frobisher travelled to North America on a number of occasions seeking fortune and the Northwest Passage during his lifetime. Frobisher Bay in the Canadian island of Baffin Island is named in his honour and he was knighted for his services against the Spanish Armada. John Hawkins would attempt to sail across the Atlantic Ocean to rescue his son, who had been captured by the Spanish. Francis Drake would accompany him, but John Hawkins himself would not return from this journey. We're not really sure what took his life, but he is reported to have died near the island of Puerto Rico in 1595, likely in his early 60s at the time. Hawkins' legacy as a great naval leader and shipbuilder is tarnished by his heightened activity in the English slave trade of Africans to the Americas. He was also knighted for his contribution to the cause against the Spanish Armada. Francis Drake would continue to attack colonies in the Americas after Hawkins, but Drake really didn't make the kind of impact that he was famed for with several failed attacks on ports. It was at the beginning of 1596 that Drake contracted the highly infectious dysentery and this would take his life. Two of England's finest naval commanders were taken during this desperate journey across the Atlantic. Drake was 56 years of age 
and we already know that Queen Elizabeth knighted him before the heroics of the Spanish Armada. With the French civil wars of religion that had drawn in the various Catholic and Protestant nations that neighboured France now coming to a conclusion, the Spanish could relax knowing that the Catholics were coming out on top. King Philip II attempted to send naval invasion fleets to England again during the 1590s, but once again it came to nothing. Philip himself died of cancer at the age of 71 in 1598, and he would be succeeded by his son, who would rule as King Philip III of Spain. Philip III realised that the war between the English and the Spanish was not beneficial to either nation, and would look to reach a peaceful resolution. Philip III would attempt to put forward terms that were not acceptable to the English, so the English decided to continue to harass Spanish ships. Queen Elizabeth herself suffered from a severe bout of depression following a number of deaths of people close to her, and she too would eventually pass away in 1603 at the age of 69. She was succeeded by King James VI of Scotland who ruled England as King James I. The death of Elizabeth took the momentum out of the traditional rivalry between England and Spain and Elizabeth's privateers were now out of fashion. James I had no desire to remain at war with the Spanish and the Spanish were grateful for the opportunity to concentrate more on their issues in the Netherlands. After the major exchanges with the Spanish Armada and Sir Francis Drake in 1588 and 1589, the English were able to cross the Atlantic Ocean again and check on how the colony at Roanoke Island was doing, this being the project funded by Walter Raleigh. The entire colony was gone, with no sign of what its fate was. Raleigh's attempts to create a North American colony had failed. Raleigh would continue to man ships that travelled to the Spanish-controlled Americas in search of the fabled city of gold called El Dorado. The accession of James I to the English throne was not good for Walter Raleigh, who had enjoyed much adventure and plunder under the rule of James's predecessor Elizabeth. Now Raleigh was seen as a dangerous man capable of inflaming the situation between England and Spain at a time when both countries were grateful for a period of peace between the two. Political enemies would rally against Raleigh and accuse him of plotting against King James. This led to Raleigh being imprisoned in the Tower of London under the charge of treason. While imprisoned for many years, Raleigh would write the history of the world, so that means I'm about 400 years too late with my version. Eventually, King James released Walter Raleigh with a pardon after a period of over 10 years of imprisonment. James wanted Raleigh to sail up the Amazon River in search of El Dorado on the condition that Raleigh did not attack any Spanish colonies, so in 1617 Raleigh once again went searching for the City of Gold. During this adventure, a detachment of English sailors did attack a Spanish settlement, and on return, Raleigh would pay the price with his own head. He was executed the following year, 
and he would have been in his mid-sixties. He had been knighted by Queen Elizabeth during the 1580s before the Spanish Armada. The Lord High Admiral Charles Howard, who was in charge of the English strategy for the Spanish Armada, fared a lot better under the reign of King James I than Walter Raleigh. Howard was much more suited to matters of political diplomacy and even took part in the peace negotiations between England and Spain at the beginning of James's reign. He lived until 1624, when he died at the very advanced age of 88 years. Thank you very much for listening to this week's episode of the History of the World podcast about the Elizabethan sea dogs. And it was a special episode commissioned by History of the World podcast Illuminati member David Peace. Now, David uh, earned the right um, by becoming a History of the World podcast Illuminati member. And uh, he did that by um, going to Patreon and and pledging an amount of money to us uh, for to help us with the upkeep of the podcast. And you too could do that as well. You can uh, click on the historyoftheworldpodcast.com website and uh, click on the Patreon link and sign up to make a monthly contribution. And, and when you do... You too, like David, could uh, could qualify for rewards. You could um, you could earn gifts that we we post out to you as well. So uh, there's a number of things that you can benefit from by supporting the podcast financially. And um, we also welcome in this week. We've got another new member, Pels Ono. So thank you, Pels, for joining the History of the World podcast Illuminati. You can also get the podcast ad-free and uh, you can um, you can get bonus material as well if you, uh, if you subscribe to the podcast on Spotify. And uh, we've made a big decision this week that we've now halved the price of subscriptions to uh, the History of the World podcast on Spotify so just basically go to Spotify or even click the link in the podcast description and uh, there you can get ad free and bonus content every week we, we often publish a debrief uh, episode that describes some of the sources used for uh, for the production of the podcast that you've just listened to so if you if you're interested in that just uh, subscribe through Spotify and you'll get an extra 10 to 15 minutes of bonus material talking about the uh, the material used in the construction of this week's podcast episode. Listener messages and reviews. Robert Reppy wrote in and said, just listen to your um, 2nd of June podcast, the unscripted one, where you sort of apologised for posting... Um, so you'd have more time to write your next episode on the Elizabethan Sea Dogs. I just wanted to say what you did was right and proper for such a superb topic. I'm willing to wait 
um, a week for you to devote your talent to give it the time it deserves. I'm sure it would be one of your very best. Drake, Hawking, pulling the beard of King Philip. It's got to be great. Absolutely looking forward to it. Uh, thank you, Robert. Yeah, um, well, it was epic, wasn't it? Um, I, I don't know. It's, it's uh, singeing the beard of King Philip. But I think um, King John of England um, pulled the beards of the Irish lords. Um, that, so maybe there's a bit of confusion with, with two stories there. But yes, singeing the beard of King Philip. Yeah, we we discovered that and talked about that today didn't we but thank you so much Robert and thank you for validating the fact that we uh, that we chose not to um, publish a an episode that was um, hurriedly uh, produced and uh, we'll never do that really I'd sooner put out a, a history of the world podcast magazine episode um, in place of a of a hurried or or haphazard episode it's uh, it's very important that all the episodes are produced correctly and and, to, and for me to do one one a week is is quite a quite a difficult task uh, but there you know there might be ways that we can get around that in the future who knows I, i'm i'm not sure um always planning ahead for the future of the podcast and thinking about what we can do better anyway Thank you very much for listening this week. Don't forget that if you subscribe, you can um, you can access bonus material through uh, through Spotify. Um, but at the moment, also we're providing um, those exclusive materials on the Patreon feed as well. So uh, for those of you who are already contributing through Patreon, you can access that as well. Anyway, that's it for this week. Um, next week, um, we're looking, hopefully, to tell the story of Easy Company. And this is another special episode, uh, this time that's been uh, commissioned by Terry Bain. And uh, he's specifically requested Easy Company, um, who um, are... Uh, are uh, they, they are in the Paratroopers Regiment of the US Army. Um, and um, their story has been told uh, visually through the HBO series um, by uh, Steven Spielberg and uh, Tom Hanks had a big part in it as well um, in the production of it and uh, it was called Band of Brothers so uh, the story of Easy Company but we're going to look into what a paratrooper actually is and um, you know why they were put to use in the Second World War in particular. So we'll be exploring a little bit more about uh, the background behind uh, the the the, uh, the war tactic of paratroopers. Anyway, that's it. So good to look forward to that next week. Thanks for listening this week. And until next time, be good. The History of the World podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Please consider making a financial contribution by going to the historyoftheworldpodcast.com website and clicking on the Patreon link. Email the show at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com And don't forget to join our social media at Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and Tumblr. See you next time.